You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagens. Welcome to the show. I'm Andy Hagens, and today we're talking about recession resistant asset classes. Not like any high net worth investors would be interested in that, right, Mark? Joining me today is Mark Curry, who's co founder at SMK Capital Management. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Andy. And, and I really do. We were just talking before we click record. I think it's a great, you know, uh, hook. I think it's a great concept. I mean, to be quite frank, I think it's the reason that most investors are even investing in alternative investments. When it, when I started covering the space, and this is this is like episode 150 something. So I've been covering it for a while. When I started, I thought that the most investors would be most interested in alpha, in higher returns. Mm. And I've kind of, there are some, but I've learned over time that you know, for most investors, individual investors I talk to, certainly for family offices, it is the portfolio diversification. It's the capital preservation. It really is the, you know, the recession resistant assets. That is the core appeal of alternative investments. Do you agree with that, Mark? 100% for me, Andy. Um, I, I started out in corporate America many years ago and Lost some money during the Great Recession, uh, typically in the stock market, a lot of public equities. Mm -hmm. And uh, gosh, I mean, I left corporate America in 2010. Um, we had been investing just as a family for five years, kind of part time. But when I left in 2010, Andy, it was a um, kind of a two, two year networking binge that I went on trying to figure out you know, where should I invest my own money? Mm -hmm. uh, after I left corporate America, I had a 401k kind of sitting idle and needed to do something with that and started realizing, looking at a lot of data, meeting some really savvy folks and some sponsors in different asset classes that actually had done well through 08 and 09. And uh, that's, that got me hooked ever since um, recession resistance and really finding investments, creating them that are lowly correlated or uncorrelated or even inversely correlated to the economy. And so that's something that we think about every day. Yeah, inversely correlated. It's almost like the holy grail, right? And I, I think, and actually, if we could just zoom out for a second, that's a really important distinction because I think a lot of LPs, um, I don't know if they're necessarily confused by that, but like sometimes just, you know, funny things happen in our brain, but we'll like mix up low correlation with negative correlation. Do you mind unpacking that for our audience, you know, and maybe, maybe an example of, of each, if you have one? Yeah, for sure. So inversely correlated to the economy. So let's say that there is a recession. Uh, you're going to want to see an increase in demand for your asset type. You want to see the ability to continue to increase net operating income, regardless of the economy. Now, that's a hard you know, uh, pill to swallow. It's hard to do. But you know, mobile home parks, for example, is an area that we've been investing in for a little over 11 years. And that was one of the asset classes we saw continue to have positive net operating income growth through the 2008-2009 crisis. Now, why? Is that well? 
on the simplest form and to keep it short, you're dealing with a uh, asset class that essentially has a moat around it for new supply. It's very hard to build new mobile home parks in desirable areas that are actually affordable. A lot of the parks that we invest in were essentially developed, Andy, in the 60s and 70s, and they're very close proximity to major MSAs, if not in them, and you just can't, can't duplicate them. So you have a very unique structure, which is quite different from a supply standpoint uh, compared to most other asset classes. You can you know, build apartments, you can build self-storage, you can build self-storage very quickly and very low cost, but uh, mobile homes is quite unique in that, in that aspect. And then you have an, uh, an idea of the fact that you know, mobile home parks are not very mobile, cost between five and $10,000 to move a home. Most of the lot rents that the residents pay, if they own their home, they pay lot rent. Um, that can be between $300 and $500 a month. So it's quite cost prohibitive for them to actually move. So you end up seeing very sticky residents. Um, you have a lot of mom and pop owners in this space, Andy, that are mismanaging, not collecting rents, not raising rents. I mean, there's a lot of opportunity. Uh, the challenges are, are they're harder to operate. You have to know what you're doing. And I mean, and that, I mean, it must be said, I think that keeps a lot of people away, a lot of potential sponsors, a lot of potential operators. It's interesting. You mentioned, you know, that the, the mom and pop nature of them, uh, the operational asset. I mean, I look at that to me, that's it's opportunity. It's like headache and opportunity all in one. It's like a potential headache, but the fact that it is a headache for so many people to operate a certain type of business is an opportunity because if you can do it well, and then if you can scale that, then now that's a huge advantage or or almost like a moat in and of itself. And I mean, similar aspect in the self-storage space, but, you know, smaller, especially self-storage facilities in, you know, secondary tertiary markets, very fragmented, a lot of mom and pop operator, you know, frankly, probably just like under underutilized, under monetized assets. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, definitely. I mean, self-storage is on our list too, Andy, of, of more recession-resistant asset classes for some of the reasons you mentioned. Again, there's also data. If you look at self-storage REITs during one of the peaks of 2008, they were actually positive while a lot of other asset classes were negative. And so what you find with self-storage is uh, anytime there's a, a recession or a downturn, uh, people tend to make a change in their lives. And that change often results in an increase in demand for storage. They might be downsizing, they might be moving in with family, they might be getting roommates, I mean, you name it. And so you tend to see, again, an increase in demand during tough times. So that's kind of the, the low correlation or the inversely correlated that we like to, to see in some of our assets. And it's so helpful to have in a portfolio, right? It's it's it can be the ballast when other income streams, other investments aren't doing well. In my own portfolio, I've talked about it a little in the show. I've done some micro private equity investing in one business that I invested in in the payments processing space is counter cyclical, right? And I just I lucked into it. Like I to be totally frank, I had no idea. It's just like something that we've learned over the past six, seven years. Is that it's countercyclical, and some businesses are countercyclical, right? And it, as you pointed out with self storage, you know, people when times are tough, people tend to make a change. You know, whether it's relocating or 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 downsizing or whatever. That same trend 
uh, is I think probably what helps, you know, that, that, that sustains the demand for affordable housing. And it, it has to be said in any boom, bust, uh, expansion, contraction, any economic cycle that we're in, we don't have enough affordable housing. You know, it, I'm sure that there's kind of like an accent over that in, in a recession, but even in good times, there's not enough uh, affordable housing, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's something we've studied for many years, Andy. Um, a couple stats which may help, but uh, there's actually a lack of affordable housing in every state in the country, and so it's not even segmented just to high population, high income areas. It's everywhere. And affordability is a definition. There's a formula, right, based on area median income and how much the resident or the homeowner can actually afford. And so it's. It's relatively straightforward to determine affordability based on a formula, but you also have, um, you know, through COVID and now with inflation and interest rates rising, I mean, there's plenty of articles out there that'll show you that it's the hardest time in over 30 years to be able to afford a house. More and more Americans can't afford a home. Um, and so you actually have seen the percent of households that can afford a home um, dropped it significantly in the last couple of years. It was roughly 45 to 50% affordable. People could afford homes in America from 2010 to 2020. And that dropped uh, in half to about 25% in 2022 alone. And since interest rates have gone up since then. Wow. You know, wow. So- that, uh, Mark, that stat is eye popping. I would not have, I would not have guessed that. Wow. Yeah, I mean, wow. you want another stat. So Harvard just came out with a study. They looked at the average mortgage rate in the U.S. from 2022, March to March 2023. It's up 30%. Right. And and I mean, that's that's pretty much in a, in a nutshell right there. And, and I mean, that's been my complaint. If I can, you know, if you're a regular listener to the show, everybody's probably sick of hearing me say this. But as an investor, as an LP, I feel like asset prices and housing prices, they have not fallen to where they need to fall to price in these higher interest rates. And I understand there's dynamics of this, right? Because if you live in a home and you're paying a very low mortgage, it's like, why would I sell? Why would I move? You know, like I'm just going to keep paying this 4% mortgage forever, right? That I could never get today. Same thing, obviously, with lots of commercial real estate. Sure. It's this, it's this very awkward period, though, where yeah. the, the cost of debt has skyrocketed. And it's like, this should be the time when assets are on sale, but they're, you know, and the, they are, you know, they, they're a little discounted from where they were 18 months ago, depending on the sector, a little more, a little less. But it's not like a fire sale, right? Are, are you, Mark, are you finding value? You know, out and about when you're underwriting assets in 2023, you know, in June, we're, we're having this conversation in late June. Are you able to find value when you're underwriting potential deals right now? Or is it really tough in this environment? Uh, it's really tough, but we are able to, Andy. Um, it, it's harder, right? We, we look at about 10 to 20 investment opportunities a month. We'll probably invest in five or six this year. And so... It's a filtration process. We're looking for great deals with great people. Um, one of the things I think that helps us have a lot of deal flow, Andy, is, is just relationships that we've built over the last you know, 13, 14 years being in this space. 
working with different operating partners and different asset classes. We've got active capital with a bunch of uh, partners of ours, operating partners, sponsors. So when they finally get something, they come to us, hey, Mark, are you guys interested? Check this out. And so we'll underwrite, we'll vet, we'll look at it. Now, some of the challenges are, of course, Andy, like you mentioned, is high cost of debt. And what that's doing is it's creating a lot of deals, negative leverage, where you have negative cash flow year one. Uh, that's not something we're comfortable with. And so we don't look at those investments very closely. Um, and so you have this kind of imbalance, like you mentioned, between buyers and sellers. A lot of sellers are just sitting and waiting to see what's going to happen. Uh, a lot of them are, are doing fine. They're producing positive cash flow. They're still performing. Right. And so why, why sell uh, at a time where it may not be favorable? Um, and so those are some of the trends we're seeing, but yeah, deal flow is definitely difficult. You know, one of the things we're constantly looking for, at least to start out with an investment, if we can find it, is a nice spread between the borrowing rate and the going in cap rate. And so uh, what's the cost of the debt versus the going in cap rate? And so if you have a positive spread there, usually trying to get between 75 to 200 basis points, you have a higher likelihood of creating positive cash flow, right? When you buy the, the property and you don't have to go pull 20 levers, which is always somewhat speculative when you talk about value add. We do like value add, but there's added risk, right? You have to go and execute. And what happens if you don't, or you don't do it well, or you can't, then where did your return go, right? And so we're, we're constantly stress testing deals and looking for an advantage that we can uh, obviously participate in. Yeah. And I mean, I, the, you know, the spread, that positive spread between cap rate and debt it's obviously rare right now. Is that is that that a function of the sector? I mean, because because it, it, I'm thinking like I, maybe I could see that with like a mobile home park or something. But it, but I feel like man, that would be hard to find with self storage, or or is it? You know, it disappears yeah. me if I'm totally out in left field here. It's hard to find everywhere, Andy. Right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's difficult. You know where we've found that spread positive um, in self storage. Like we have an operating partner, for example, we've been working with a number of years. We've got uh, a lot of active capital with them that continues to do very well. Uh, they have, for example, and this is kind of what we're looking for. We're looking for something special. What makes you special? Operating partner sponsors that we want to work with. What do you do differently? that we can't replicate. Um, and so the, this team, for example, has a full-time um, acquisitions team of uh, six people all day long. All they're doing is cold calling owners of self-storage facilities of mobile home parks. Those are the two asset classes they focus on, Andy. And they've built relationships with a lot of these folks over the last 15 years, uh, which is a process they've been in doing for 15 years. Yeah. And so they just picked up, for example, a self-storage facility, um, elderly lady, about 80 years old, her husband recently passed away and she's just not collecting the rent and she's not raising, they haven't raised the rents in years. So Mark, okay. If I'm, if I, <laughs> let me unpack this. If I'm yeah. hearing this, right. No, I like what I'm hearing. Sure. So there's a team where we're, we're calling these mom and pop owners. And then the typical phone call is, no, I'm not interested in selling, you know, maybe in 10 years when I retire, but right now, yada, yada, yada. And then, then we're going to have a, have a nice phone call. I'm going to ask you about your kids and your grandkids and et cetera, et cetera. That's right. And then, but I'm going to call you every year and I'm going to remember your, your grandkids names and 
how's Susie doing in softball league or, or whatever. And then I finally, 15 years later, the lady says, well, I'm 82. I'm finally ready to sell. I don't even feel like talking to a realtor or any of that stuff. Uh, can you meet my number? And then your partner says, I think we can, let's underwrite it. We'll be back. You know, we'll get back to you in 24 hours. Is that, is that kind of the, yeah, the mousetrap here. That sounds pretty that's, awesome, to be that's honest. That's how they do it, Andy. So yeah. that's their sweet sauce. It's, <laughs> it's literally building relationships over years. And they yeah. told me many times, like we've been talking to the seller for six years. And so, uh, you know, it, it's it's hard. You have to work your butt off to find great deals. Yes. So we're looking for operators and sponsors that think the same way and have some kind of competitive advantage. Well, that, I mean, that. That's the competitive advantage right there in in my mind is access to off-market deals and then getting them at a good price. Okay. You know, it, does, it doesn't necessarily mean that, that the seller's not, you know, getting a bad deal, but if you're off-market, number one, the transaction costs are, are way, way lower, right? Right off the bat, right? So there's just more, there's kind of more room for everybody, for buyer and seller, you know, depending on who's involved in a deal. So you're finding these deals off market and that's why you're you're basically still able to to find value in 2023. I mean if you're looking at at on the market deals if you're underwriting you know if you're going to Coastar whatever uh LoopNet and and looking at self storage facilities would you find any value there or would everything So I I can't say Andy you know our deals come to us from relationships through operating partners and sponsors, right? So we, we've kind of got this system in place where when our sponsors have a deal and they're the ones that are scouring the market, right? They've got the acquisitions teams, they've got the relationships with owners, with brokers, you name it. Um, they'll then come to us. So there's actually a, a little bit of a filtration process where we, we still pass on the most of the deals that our operators bring us mm-hmm. uh, and uh, focus on ones that we think are really have something special. And so that's kind of where we get involved. We're not on the internet looking for deals. It's really just through relationships that we've built over the years. Nice position to be in. Well, talk about your your funds, right? So, so you have primarily three different asset classes that you're really investing heavily into right now. And uh, what I think is cool, you know, you're blending them into a fund so an investor can get some diversified exposure through a single fund. So so what are the three asset classes just to just to be totally clear on that? Sure, yeah. So I mean there's a few that we focus on Andy for many years now. Uh mobile homes is one, self storage is another. Uh we've been investing in apartments for a long time. We still think uh there's a lot of positive uh, uh metrics and performance and financials regarding that space. You just have to be very careful with apartments like right now we're only looking at tax exempt apartments where you don't have to pay property taxes. So it's a very niche within that sector. Um, We've been exclusively investing in tax exempt apartments and no other apartments for a little over a year and a half now. Um, And then also we love uh, triple net industrial sale leaseback, which is a mouthful, but it's another sector that uh, we find to be, gosh, just very excited about. So well, tell us more about that that last one. I don't even know yeah. that I can repeat the whole thing. Is <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. It's triple net industrial sale lease back. And so basically what this is, is 
we have an operating partner that focuses on this space. They, uh, the seal, but sale lease back process is essentially you're looking at like a manufacturing business that owns the real estate and the building, the infrastructure, et cetera, but they're selling that. They want to sell the real estate and continue to occupy the property. A lot of times they're selling the real estate because they were recently acquired by a private equity firm and they want to have an injection of capital. And so um, our operating partners in this space focus on uh, just this sector within industrial. And so you have essentially a tenant that's already at the property. They've been operating their business and they're selling the real estate to our operating partners and us and then leasing it back. So you have 100% occupancy at acquisition, which obviously helps lower risk. Some of the benefits of this space, Andy, you got long-term triple net leases, you know, 20-year leases are put in place at acquisition. They have rent escalations built in. And so rents go up two to 3% every year built into the lease um, regardless, right? And so uh, you also have, you know, the, the, one of the big benefits is the triple net or absolute triple net structure where the tenant is responsible to pay property level expenses, property taxes, insurance, utilities, maintenance, it's all on them. And so if you think about a hedge against inflation, and really stagflation, uh, which is something we continue to, to think about when we're choosing investments. It's really hard to beat this structure because your expenses are zero, but your rents are going up every year. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we love that sector. It gets favorable debt. You actually have seen, our operating partners have seen a, a, about a 200 basis point increase in cap rates over the last year and a half. Wow. And so now you have around, you know, debt is on these assets, the uh, 70% loan to value, low 6% interest rate with a going in cap rate. A lot of them are north of 8%. Wow. So you have a nice uh, cash flow beginning day one. And, and, you know, I'm picking up on a theme. So maybe it's not the case here, but is, is this a case of off market deals where we have, you know, 200 private equity uh, companies and a Rolodex and they know that. When we have a company, you know, the, the, there's a couple different real estate operators or you know sponsors that we want to talk to, um, or or do these go on the open market? It's both. Yeah, they go on the open market, Andy. It is a smaller, um, I would say, sector within commercial real estate. Yeah, there's uh, there's some players in there that all know each other yeah, as far as brokers, realtors, you name it, and also private equity groups. This is an area where a lot of private equity is investing. Um, and our operating partners have been in this space for, I think, over seven, eight years now. And so they've, they've built a pretty large portfolio. They're nearing over a billion dollars in assets under management. So they've got a really nice position in the market, which helps them get deal flow. And it, it's interesting. So you've had this recession-resistant theme you know, with your company, and, and you talked about how you know, that was kind of born from the financial crisis, 2008, 2009. And I think that, you know, that, that was as an investor, that was like my first major market drawdown and left an impression. Right. So it's kind of like that. It's kind of like, you know, uh, talking to my grandma, she would talk about the great depression. It was like that left an impression on you. Right. Ob obviously, fortunately, the, the financial crisis of 2008, 2009, wasn't as bad as the great depression, but it's nevertheless, it kind of shapes that mindset. And you've had that mindset of recession resistant assets than thereafter. But what was it like, you know, running your firm 
in 2018, 2019, even then 2020, after that little hiccup, then after COVID, then it was just up, up, up. Was it, was it, was it frustrating at all having the theme of a recession resistant or was it just like, well, it doesn't hardly matter what you own. Everything is up 20% this year. You know, what, what was that like? Sure. That, that three-year period for you. So in 2018, Andy, we kind of saw some signals in the marketplace that there could be a recession soon. And I was looking to invest in something that was at least planning with that in mind. I couldn't find much, to be honest with you. So we went out and created a recession-resistant fund. That's literally what we called it. In that fund, we combined um, uh, 50 properties across 13 states, a little over 12,000 units by investing in multiple operating partners' uh, opportunities in mobile homes, self-storage, and some apartments, typically workforce housing and growth markets and put those together into a fund so our investors could spread their capital across all those deals. Um, And we closed that fund in late 2019. And sure enough, COVID early 2020 and the onset of uh, just a very slight recession, I believe it was one of the shortest in history, 2020. But we did also see, I think for a moment, inverted yield curve prior to that, which is a forward-looking indicator of a recession. And so, uh, nonetheless, I think we timed the, the start of that investment quite well. It's, it's done quite well since then. We haven't missed distributions. We do quarterly distributions. We haven't missed those since inception. We've actually returned about a third or more of capital to investors uh, through refinancing and some property sales. Then you fast forward to 2020, uh, we actually stopped investing entirely for seven months, Andy. We didn't make any new investments in 2020. We were actually in the middle of an investment in February of 2020. We were starting to raise capital from our group, and we returned it to our, our group saying, now's not the time to do this. We're going to pause and wait and see what happens. So for that period of seven months of uncertainty, the reason why we stopped investing is because there could easily have been a market crash from uh, occupancy across sectors, from the lack of transactions, lack of financing available, uh, valuations could have plummeted. And so if you think there's that kind of potential coming soon, very high risk, I'd say. For us, it's just pencils down. Let's wait and analyze the market. See yeah. And, and Mark, I, I got to stop you there and just say, yeah. I, can't, I can't argue with that decision at all because you can Monday m- morning quarterback things and say, well, but look, asset prices ended up rising. And it's like, yeah, they did because we injected way too much liquidity into the economy. And now we have a huge hangover from that, right? So it's like there's there's no really predicting that policy response. And I mean, frankly, we're still dealing with the 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 down effect, you know, the negative effects from that today. And we will be into next year at least, probably into the year after that, right? Right, right. Yeah. It's there was so much uncertainty in the market back then, Andy, that we couldn't get comfortable with anything, right? And yep. so you know, fast forward to early 2022, the focus was really back on recession resistance. Uh, we knew that interest rates were going to start going up. So everything from early 2022 to today is, is fixed rate debt, relatively longer term focus, you know, five plus year holds. Although some of our assets do return principal prior to that through refinances. But um, it's it's kind of a, a 
don't sell at the wrong time approach and make sure that your debt doesn't force you to sell at the wrong time. And so that's a big position of where we look at things today. Um, and uh, uh, a lot of the asset classes that we talked about, Andy, is, is really where we continue to focus and building funds to allow investors to spread their capital across these selected deals that we we can access and, and uh, partner with our operators with. Yeah, and I, again, I, I love the theme, but to, to me now it begs the question, I'll put you on the spot. Are we in a recession? I mean, it's, I, it's such, all of the economic signals are just so mixed. It's like nobody really knows. It almost kind of defaults to, well, we sort of are. Like if everybody asks you, are we in a recession for like six months in a row, then it's almost like, well, we, we at least have the sentiment of a recession. But what do you think? Are we, are we in one? I don't think we're in one right now, Andy. Um, we, we think there could be one soon, but we might be wrong. Um, and there's, you're absolutely right. It's a mixed bag of news. Like we track this stuff every day. I read about two hours of articles and news on the market, different asset classes within our sectors, what's going on. Um, and and it's, it's anyone's guess at this moment. There's very smart economists out there with a team of analysts that will say that doom and gloom is around the corner. Another group with the same type of analysis, all accessing some of the same data, saying we're not going to see a recession. So, yeah. you know, just in the last month, for example, HSBC came out and they said there's a recession coming uh, this year in the U.S. And uh, but they also mentioned they think it's going to be more like the early 90s, where GDP might go down one to two percent, where if you compare that with 08, over four percent. So a mild potential downturn. And then you have payrolls in May just went through the roof. You saw one of the fastest growing job markets. Unemployment rate is at 3.7%, the lowest rate since 1969. So how do you have a recession when an economy is essentially fully employed? It's kind of hard to fathom those two. There's a lot of other leading indicators. We saw copper pricing go up in May and June, it rebounded, I think a little over 12%. That's usually a leading indicator of a recession if it's going down because copper is used in so many different industries and so many different products. Um, there's a lot more we track, but you know, you've got Mark Zandi, chief economist at Moody's, came out early in uh, middle of June, gave five reasons why he thinks he's betting against the US recession. And so it's it's literally a mixed bag. I think uh, nobody knows. We're planning for it. We're positioning ourselves for it. Um, but trying to time the market is something that nobody can do. So as long as you have good investments that can uh, beat inflation from a cash flow standpoint, that can have capital preservation, um, be very lowly correlated to the overall market, I think you're in a good position to keep investing instead of maybe sitting on the sidelines and waiting and then losing money to inflation. So that's kind of our, our thought process. No, I, I like it. I, I can't disagree with anything you said. You know, I'm on record on this show, and I think this was in Q4 last year when I first predicted that I think we might see this bull market run that everybody kind of hates, right? It's like if everyone's waiting for the recession, is, you know, unless they're drastically changing their spending behavior, at which it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy. But but the bull market climbs a wall of worry, right? And and so um, you know certainly I think some companies were cautious. We saw lots of tech layoffs, but then arguably they were just kind of in that post COVID hangover, right? So 
Uh, I, I think that attitude of plan, you know, plan for one, but don't necessarily expect one. I, th I think that's a, a pretty good take, I think, for even for investors, asset managers or investors. Well, you know, you have these multiple asset classes within your fund. Is Are, are any of them, you know, are the risk return profiles similar for each of those asset classes? Or do you see some of them as maybe higher risk, higher return, and you're blending them with with you know other parts of the fund that are more anchor type investments, or are they all are they all similar? Uh, yeah, no, they they vary, Andy, on purpose. We are looking to mix different risk profiles. It's on purpose. So, for example, the goal of the of most of our funds is to create a blended return of income and growth, mm -hmm. and uh, you can kind of calculate how much of your return is coming from distributions and income and how much of your return is coming from growth on the upside of the sale. And if you have a higher risk investment, you know, you might see 80% of the total return coming at the time of sale. A lower risk investment, a little more blended, um, you might see kind of the opposite, 20, 30% coming from the sale. And so that's our concept of how we look at uh, income and growth and a balance between the two. So with that, we have identified a couple investments that are focused specifically on income mm -hmm. and they're going to provide cash flow uh, beginning year one to our investors. And then we also have investments that have income and growth. Uh, and uh, and you have some that are just more focused on growth, but all within the asset classes that we typically uh, invest in that we talked about with a very you know, strategic idea of how much income and how much growth to really be well balanced and uh, and be very diversified as well. Yeah, and I think you know the diversified fund structure. It's something I'm seeing a little bit more, right? I mean, I, I think historically you saw a lot of funds that were very focused on just one strategy or just one sector. And, you know, I think a lot of accredited investors, depending on their net worth or, or also just tolerance for like how many K-1s they want to get, they don't necessarily have the ability or, or interest in allocating to like 25 different alternative investment funds. So I'm, I'm seeing more and more traction with that diversified approach. It's really interesting. Well, we're almost out of time, Mark, but, you know, since you, you know, you mentioned you do two hours of reading a day. Uh, you know, you're you're a recession watcher, right? You're like a like a storm chaser. You're you're a recession chaser. You know, g given your firm's, you know, your outlook, your philosophy. You know, aside from you know not necessarily expecting a recession, any other trends or 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 predictions you think might play out the next 24, 36, 48 months? You know, what, what, how, how generally speaking, in that medium term, are are you bullish? Do you think uh, real estate is still a good place to invest? Um, you know, give give us something that we can sink our teeth sure. into. Go on the record. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I do think real estate is still a great place to invest. I think you got to be cautious what you're investing in, where, and what your assumptions are. Um, and so, next twenty four months, Andy. Gosh, that's a tough one. I'll say this: twenty twenty four is an election year. Historically, election years see a stronger economy. There are studies that have been published going back to 1960 that analyze election years, and uh, they see stronger real GDP growth, um, stronger household income. And so 
why that is is still a little bit unknown, but uh, you could speculate. And so I think a lot of people are maybe not taking that into consideration that we're going to have an election year next year. And that's that's important. Usually the economy does well. So that to me is, is a big one. But at the same time, you got a two-year, 10-year inversion, um, and you've got a leading indicator of a recession just kind of flashing a red flag right now. So we watch that very closely. Um, and that spread between the, the two and the 10 has been, I think it's at its lowest, the highest level since the 1980s. And so it's actually quite concerning. So with that, you know, nobody knows what's going to happen. We've got positive news, negative news, you name it. But what we're seeing is, uh, for example, real estate demand for affordable housing, even uh, kind of middle market apartments. Um, we saw 96% of rent in May was collected. And you're starting to see rent starting to tick back up again. They went down a little bit in Q4 of 2022. And now you're seeing year over year rent growth again. And so why is that? Well, it's a supply demand disequilibrium. It's Econ 101. We have a massive shortage of housing, specifically affordable housing in the US. There's studies out there that say it's going to take at least 10 years to fill that gap. Um, you're seeing affordability of home ownership out of reach for most Americans. And so the options are quite thin, unfortunately. Uh, I think that's a trend that we're going to see consistent uh, for the next few years. It's one of the reasons why we invest in affordable housing. We think that the long-term trend there is quite positive uh, from a, a supply-demand equilibrium standpoint. So I don't know if that helps, but we're, we're being very cautious right now. We're investing in assets and opportunities that are a little bit of a no-brainer, Andy. Obviously, there's always risk, but uh, we're really trying to be very careful with what we're selecting and uh, making sure we we know the trends going on uh, in the marketplace. Well, you know that's interesting. You know, you alluded to this this Jekyll and Hyde. At least economic data is 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 seems very mixed. But when you own an asset where there is a supply demand disequilibrium, to use your word, I would say mismatch, just because it's easier for me to say. Sure. But uh, <laughs> I think your term was the correct one. That, <laughs> that fundamental fact is going to exist, whether we're in a recession or not, that fundamental is still going to be in your favor, right? It's still going to be in your favor in 12 months and 24 months and 36 months, because especially as you pointed out with uh, the mobile home parks, you know, they're not going to be starting to build tons of these in desirable areas, but even broadening out to multifamily, you know, sure, there was maybe a little bit more construction uh with asset you know more ground up construction happening with asset managers but it's nowhere near enough to address the shortage in housing so that that underlying fundamental to me it it does override everything on a, on a five-year timeline certainly on a 10-year plus timeline um so mark this has just been a fascinating conversation i feel like i could keep you here for another hour picking your brain about economic indicators and all that but we'll have to have you back on the show later on to do that. But in the meantime, where can our audience of high net worth investors and family offices go to learn more about SMK Capital Management? Sure. Yeah, Andy, our, our, our website is smkcap.com. Um, and we got a lot of information on there about um, existing portfolio, recent investments, some available offerings. Uh, and then you can also uh, uh, share my email address with folks. It's uh, info at smkcap.com. So if you're interested in just learning more, uh, feel free to reach out. I'm happy to connect one-on-one. -on -one. 
Awesome. And we'll be sure to link to the website and uh, SMK Capital Management on LinkedIn, all that jazz on our uh, show notes page, which is always available at wealthchannel.com. Mark, thanks again for joining the show today. My pleasure. Thank you, Andy. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode. Oh,